Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cloud Architect podcast, a podcast about cloud technology and the people using it. Welcome, everyone. Nicholas Blank here with my co-host, Warren Dutoy and Chris Goosen. Hello. Hi, everyone. For more information on this podcast, as well as other shows, uh, browse to http colon forward slash forward slash thearchitects.cloud. This podcast is brought to you by Kemp Technologies. We chose Kemp as a sponsor based on their amazing product line for the cloud, which includes the Kemp Loadmaster appliance in the Microsoft Azure Marketplace, as well as Kemp 360 family. For more information, go to kemptechnologies.com. This podcast is brought to you by NB Consult. NB Consult is a consultancy based in South Africa, the United Kingdom, and Hong Kong, focused on migrating customers to the cloud or helping them build their own clouds. In today's episode, Nick, Chris, and Warren are speaking to Tony Redmond. Tony Redmond is an independent consultant who specializes in Microsoft collaboration technology. He runs his own consulting company and advises many companies on how to best develop, use, or exploit Microsoft technology. He has written 15 books and is the lead author of the Office 365 for IT Pros ebook. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you very much. That was the nicest introduction that anybody's ever done for me. Is that right? You, 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 you <laughs> enunciated every word so perfectly. You sounded like a radio announcer. <laughs> it's actually, I try to sound less radio announce-ish every show that we do. Except that um, show number one was truly, truly horrible and terrible. So um, I think we may even have to delete that one off the feed. <laughs> anyway, it's good to be here. So today we want to grill you on all things GDPR, or at least as many as we can fit into an episode. But before we get to that, we'd love to ask you some questions on how you got to where you are today. So... With that, if you don't mind, we'd love to, to unpack a little bit of your work history and what happened to you after you finished formal employment, so to speak, and then got into independent consulting. Hmm. This is like de Desert Island Discs, then, this is ish. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I, I mean, I got, to, I got to an age where I'd been in, working in standard corporate life. Um, for 20 odd years, 25 odd years, and it really wasn't actually more than that. Um, and I'd done pretty well everything I would, I had wanted to do. I ended up as a VP and Chief Technology Officer in HP, and there wasn't really anything more that awaited me there uh, except uh, a vast sea of con calls, most of which never did anything. So I decided to get out and do something different, and uh, at that stage, HP were looking for people who are old and wizened and washed up like myself and said, well, uh, you can go away and you can return. So thanks very much. Also, I did it. And um, so I needed to do something to keep myself busy. And ever since then, I've done some consulting, big companies to small companies, mostly software companies. I've sat on boards. I've chaired boards. Uh, I write twice a week for Petri.com, where I get the, the chance to shout at Microsoft quite a lot about problems that they have with uh, Office 365. And as you mentioned earlier, we now we have this um, project called the Office 365 Variety Pros eBook, which is a bit like writing software insofar as uh, we update it every week, uh, which is a bit quick for some people. 
but we update it as we find problems and fix problems or as people change, uh, mostly Microsoft changed things in Office 365 or people find out new techniques, new technologies, new tricks, whatever, you know, so we update that. So between, between the jigs and the reels, I have, I have a packed and busy life. 15 books so far, Tony. How did you manage that? Um, well, the old adage was that a page a day keeps your editor away. Yeah. And um, that's just the way it is. So if you write a page, a page is only 650 words. Anybody should be able to write 650 words in 30 minutes. Wow. So it's 30 minutes a day. I mean, I, you know, I've, some of the best articles I've ever written have been in front of the TV while I've got one eye on the news and the other eye on my screen. You know, it just happens. You just work. You just write. Some of my worst articles have also happened in front of the TV. I should also say, but that's I, I don't talk about that uh, in public. Page a day. That's a that's the, I think that's great advice. So Tony, on top of all of the things you just mentioned, you're also a, uh, a long-standing uh, member of the uh, MVP community, and we've been taking some bets here as to how long it's been, but I, I don't think any of us actually have the the right number there. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, MVP. That's uh, yeah. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the MVP community insofar as uh, I resisted joining it for quite a while. And then I think it's around 2004, Microsoft eventually said, you know, join and it'll all be good. So I did at that stage. And at, at that point, I was still an executive, still, you know, um, a vice president at HP. So it was kind of odd having uh, an executive position and, and being this kind of, mem being a member of a what seemed to be an uber uber geek community. Um, but it's been good. Uh, I like the people who are in the community. Uh, I, I think that um, there are some huge flaws in the community. I think there are far too many MVPs for, for one thing, and I think there are far too many MVPs who are not at the required level. I mean, if you want to be, a leader in technology, then that means that you've got to lead. And I don't see leadership shining out from many of the people who are in the MVP community. Um, I've said this to Microsoft many times, and I had responsibility uh, at HP for leading some really big tech communities. So I have some pretty intimate knowledge of what it takes to develop leaders and what it, what it takes to bring people through and recognize the movers and shakers in the tech community and give them opportunities to succeed and, and excel. I just don't see that in Microsoft. I don't see that in the MVP community. So I see a lot of debris and, uh, and a lot of uh, hangers-on, a lot of so-so people who enjoy very much their status, but they've only got the status because they've basically brown-nosed their way to becoming an MVP uh, with the local subsidiary. And I think those are really, really big problems that Microsoft eventually will will have to address. Otherwise, the program is just going to fail because of its lack of quality. I bet you didn't think you were going to get that type of answer. It's a well, pretty good one, actually. Um, it is a very good answer, a very honest answer. I think, uh, and, you know, speaking for me personally, I think there have been a lot of things that, uh, a lot of guidance and mentorship that's come from you that's kind of helped me in the, in the MVP community. So, um, but yes, I, I think that was a really, really good answer. Um, so thank you for that. Um, so, you know, the thing is, you get to a stage in your career where really you just don't need to blow smoke anymore. You don't need to drink the Kool-Aid. You don't need to say the right thing. You just got to tell it the way it is. And really, this program could be so much better. And and what's frustrating is that um, I think some people at Microsoft know that it could be better. But 
some of the folks who are working on the program just don't have that drive. They don't have the vision and they don't, they don't have the willingness to improve it. So that's, that's probably the most distressing thing. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, so if we step away from the MVP program just for a second, I think you, you mentioned, um, uh, when we're talking about your work history that you've been you know, consulting to some larger companies, some smaller companies, anything in particular you want to talk to us about or that you are able to talk to us about in terms of what you're doing today? No, I t- no. well, today I don't do so much uh, consulting anymore because I'm quite busy with um, I'm the chairman of the board for Quadratech, which is a uh, software company based in Switzerland. We've got about uh, 120 people working for us around the world. We're we're working on some really nice Office 365 technology, things that will solve problems that are in the product. Uh, so that takes up a lot of my time. And um, really, I think once you've, again, it's, you know, you've always got limited bandwidth. And you can attempt to slice and dice that bandwidth to, to do lots and lots of different things. But if you do, you, you, you will fail eventually. So I prefer to give focus on that, and that's what I'm doing right now. But in the past, I mean, I've, I've worked with some really big companies uh, who were among the first to embrace um, Office 365, or was at the time BPOS, which was really, really, really bad news. But uh, anyway, you know, things are a lot better now today. In fact, they're extraordinarily better today. Um, and a lot of it was just making um, executives of the company believe that the cloud could actually deliver a solution because that's that's the biggest problem I find the most. You know, the, the technology problems the techies will work through. You know, I mean, they'll get the network right eventually. They'll, they'll sort out the internal network so that it can transmit stuff to the internet. They'll put in big enough pipes that all everything will go across to Office 365. They'll migrate mailboxes, they'll move sites, they'll eventually get rid of old file servers. That's all block and tackling. That's, there's nothing drastically complex about that kind of stuff. What's complex is all the office politics that have to be uh, sorted out within large companies. And I think a lot of the time I, I spent just making executives happy that things were going to be okay, that this was a good choice and there was yeah, there would be glitches along the way, and some people in the company would say that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. But um, most of the times it worked out pretty well, so that's, that's what I did. I mean, I've always said, and even as I go back to the MVP community, I'm not the most technical person in the world. And uh, there are certainly people in the MVP community who are so much more technical, including folks on this phone call, uh, so much more technical than I am. Um, they can actually talk bits and bytes, whereas I, I'm at a much higher level. Uh, I talk in complete words. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I would I'd leave it to the techies to, to do all that block attacking, to, to get things done, and then just concentrate on making sure that everything was moving forward in the right general direction. And I worked out pretty well. Tony, you just mentioned that there are things... If we, if I phrase it in a slightly different way, where the cloud services that are being punted aren't quite complete and there aren't necessarily the panacea that the vendors are are making it out to be, which is why there's a reason to maintain software created by third parties, as as Microsoft calls the mm-hmm. rest of the world partners. 
Do you mind unpacking your view on why this mystical vision of cloud isn't going to solve world hunger? Well, nothing will ever solve world hunger, but cloud, cloud services absolutely won't. Um, so uh, the, I think we've got to peel that question back a little bit because uh, the big problem, I think, is that in the on-premises world, you have various ecosystems that uh, third parties, the ISVs of the world, can uh, can build their businesses around. Okay, so uh, if you take Office 365, the two big um, on-premises ecosystems were Exchange and SharePoint. Now you move into the cloud, all of a sudden, yep. those ecosystems disappear. Uh, those ecosystems are totally gone because, firstly. Mm -hmm. Microsoft does a lot of the basic system management that the third parties attempted to automate or improve or streamline or whatever. And so that's the first issue. The second issue is that the role of the technologies are very different. The role of, if you take SharePoint, for example, the role of SharePoint on-premises was to be the fulcrum of document management for large enterprises. And people built huge document management processes around SharePoint. Right In the cloud, the role of SharePoint is to be a document management service, sure, but it's at a much it doesn't have it doesn't have the same priority, it doesn't have the same primacy as it does on premises. So now you find that uh, where the, the growth in SharePoint is not because of SharePoint itself. The growth in SharePoint online is because of teams and office 365 groups where people all of a sudden are consuming SharePoint without knowing that they're consuming SharePoint. So the role and the, pri and the primacy of SharePoint is absolutely much reduced. It's the same for Exchange. Exchange in, in the cloud is no more than a, an email service that, that can be in, consumed as needed by other applications. Again, uh, um, that's just mm -hmm. the way things happen. Uh, Office 365 is essentially a software toolbox. So what this does for, for ISVs is it creates a whole new world that they have to deal with. Uh, they don't, they can't tweak the things that they used to be able to tweak. You know, there's no notion of going anywhere into the system, system registry to dump some weird stuff in there to make their tools work or to change the way Microsoft tools work. Uh, there's no planting of processes onto servers or onto uh, that to make sure that their, their code runs. Uh, and, and basically they have to get with the new world and the new world is has got a much reduced surface that they can penetrate, okay, because they can only do what Microsoft allows them to do or what Microsoft exposes to them in the cloud. And they uh, and they have to find really new value propositions that they can bring to customers. And I think a lot of ISVs are, are struggling very much. I mean, you see, you know, it's, you see at one end some people that, are still talking about backup in the in the kind of the way that people used to backup on-premises software, and they're trying to say, oh yeah, you can do exactly the same type of thing in the cloud, and that is total brown, smelly stuff of the highest nature. Uh, and people just haven't got that that idea yet that that they're dealing with a different uh, world order. So for ISVs, and this is the thing I've been through with a lot of ISVs at this point in time, it's a case of trying to find out where in the limited service that Microsoft has allowed uh, ISVs to to work with, uh, where you can find problems that customers need to to be solved. And you go and you attack those problem areas, and you do it better than Microsoft will do.
And, and here's another thing about the cloud. Because it's a massive multi-tenant kind of uh, fabric that we're dealing with, the kind of functionality that is delivered, especially in the management side, tends to be just good enough. And it's just good enough for the vast majority of Office 365 tenants. If you peel away the onion, you find that the, the bulk of Office 365 tenants are very small companies. Vast bulk in numeric terms, not in terms of the number of seats, but in numeric terms. Now, as it happens, a very small Office 365 tenant can cause as much cost for Microsoft in terms of support calls as a very large tenant. So it actually, it's actually really, really intelligent and really, really good thing to make sure that what you deliver is focused on the small to medium organizations rather than the large enterprises. So I think a lot of the stuff that you see inside uh, Office 365 management and administration tends to be focused on small to medium tenants. Even if you look at the Office 365 admin console and you look at the user's view, and, gee, okay. So the first thing I'm going to do is going to start scrolling at users with uh, surnames A, and I'm going to go all the way down through. Well, you know, that's okay if you've got a tenant with 50 users in it. It gets really painful when you've got 1,000. It gets absolutely unusable when you've got 10,000. So that's, that's just an example. And I think the, the, the absolute nice area for, or the, 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 the golden triangle, if you will, for ISVs to investigate is how to help large enterprises manage the cloud better than, the, 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 than Microsoft enables them to do. And that's where I think there's most gap. So, Tony, is it fair to ask then, and I may have misunderstood your, your point, peeling right back to the, your, your answer before this one, do you feel that for large enterprises, Microsoft is potentially not delivering on the promise of cloud? No, I think they're delivering in many ways. I think they're delivering in terms of the, the functionality. I think that they're, they're very innovative. If you take, for example, um, take... Um, anti-spam, anti-malware, and whatever, okay? I think Microsoft, does, they get a lot of, uh, they get a lot of people talking about their lack of delivery in this area, but I think they actually do a pretty good job. I think they do a better job than people give them credit for, and I think they do a better job than most large enterprises do. And that's because you've got groups of really talented people brought together with immense resources and uh, they're going to attack a single problem, which is how to stop uh, malware. And they, they do that on a day-in, day-out basis. And the result of that work comes through in Office 365, in EOP and ATP. And that's, that's all goodness. So from that perspective, Microsoft is putting in the work, and it's putting in the, uh, the resources. And, you know, they have now delivered a very, very substantial business to the corporation. If you take the, the last set of figures that Microsoft released to the, uh, to the market, when they were talking about, you know, this annualized run rate for uh, commercial cloud products getting up to about 22 billion. And, uh, and the analysts think that, well, Azure might be 8 billion of that, might be 6 billion, they're not quite sure. Office 365 is the rest. This Dynamics 365 is not all that much. So mm. this is a huge business, and Microsoft is putting in the resources for, to support that business. But I think that there are 
some areas where they 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 just don't want to go because there are areas of management where that are very complex and they are always going to be customized based on the customer environment take and, and the reason why microsoft doesn't want to go there is that it's really difficult to come off up with a one size fits all solution for example tenant to tenant migration uh, that is that is the classic oh, yeah. example uh, right now we're in a situation where office 365 seven years old but the vast majority of office 365 um tenant to tenant work that's happened in that period has been email based and that's because Exchange was the first workload to go to the cloud, mm. and it was the first workload to really take a firm root in the cloud. So naturally, the, the tenants that uh, have um, needed to split and join and merge in, in recently and are in the past, it's mostly about being about email. And you know, email is a very well understood science these days, and we can do that. Sometimes it means you have to strip down a tenant and, and delete it and create a new one or whatever, but you can basically get there. Now, things get a lot more complex as a lot more of these Office 365 integrated apps go into the mix. When you look at Teams, for example, so and Teams is still only used by a very small minority of Office 365 uh, tenants when you look at numbers. But it's, you know, Microsoft said it's 200,000 organizations. Mm -hmm. So I presume that some of those 200,000 organizations is going, are going to split, join, or merge sometime in the next couple of years. So you look at Teams, you say, right, okay, so you've got two yes. Azure services running in the background, one for your chats or your messages and one for media. Okay, how do I get stuff out of these uh How do I get stuff out of these uh services and how do I migrate that over to this other tenant? And the answer is there is no API. There are no public APIs to do this. There's no way to do this. So what do you do? Okay, so can I use these compliance records that Microsoft dumps into uh, exchange mailboxes? And you say, oh, no, I can't really do that either because, yeah, I can move them with the mailbox, but they're not really the full story. Because when you look at one of those compliance records, yeah. Um, it doesn't tell you any of the context in which a conversation happened. And context is all about, you know, where was in the point in the conversation, uh, who replied to it afterwards, that kind of thing. And even some of the social stuff, like, who did anybody actually like this? Because a like is an indication somebody actually viewed a conversation. And that could be important in a court case if you were to really get down to the nitty-gritty of, compl of compliance. So there's no way we can take that kind of information and move it uh, across to another tenant. And it's the same with planners, it's the same with staff hub, it's the same with Sway. You know, I mean, you've got all these other bits of Office 365 data that are now going into the mix. It's not just email anymore, it's not just documents anymore. It leads me to my more. next question. And talking about data specifically, your take on GDPR. You've just told us now exactly how Office 365 works and compliance and shifting the data around. For users that are already in Office 365, people who want to mm -hmm. remain compliant, GDPR kicks in this month, and then, yep, what and then what happens? People are losing their minds, and I think they probably have good reason to. What is your take on that? 
uh, well, I'm, you know, I've been through a couple of GDPR exercises, and really it's important, firstly, to keep your mind. It's first important, because it's very easy to start getting very, very, very distressed about GDPR. The problem is not probably going to be in Office 365, because the, uh, you can find personal data. And by, by the way, you, the thing to remember, it's not PII data. It's personal data, okay? So there's PII data, which is a particular definition. But what the European Union is really worried about is personal data that you would not normally disclose to somebody else that a company keeps and processes. So, for example, uh, your home address, you wouldn't normally give that out. That's personal data, and that's the kind of thing that you can uh, that you need to manage. Fortunately, within Office 365, there's a hell of a lot of uh, features that will allow you to to, to have control over. Uh, personal data and to in Microsoft's credit they've been very good about uh, pushing stuff out to help people you know the, the compliance manager it wasn't great in terms of tool set except for its ability to break down all of the GDPR articles and tell you what you needed to do but then more recently we started to see things like um, the security compliance center has just got in preview a thing called uh, data subject um, a data subject request, which is uh, when somebody comes to you and says, you need to tell me everything that you have on file about me in your systems. And as it turns out, about 90% of anything that is uh, that is in Office 365 about people is going to be in things like uh, Excel worksheets, it's going to be in Word documents, it's going to be in uh, email, and all the rest of it. So these are all indexed, they're all... Uh, they're all discoverable, and they're all exportable, and that's all okay. There are some leading applications which have uh, big problems, I still think, with GDPR. Yammer is one of those. I think that's a, a really big problem uh, to because it's not covered by the standard Office 365 uh, data governance framework. Uh, Planner is another one. But, you know, Microsoft will get to them. But anyway, Office 365, I think, there's a reasonable story there if people want to use all of the features and functionality. And, of course, that's a totally different matter because people probably haven't got to the stage yet of, uh, for example, defining classification labels, applying those classification labels to documents and messages and all that sort of stuff. But the functionality is there. In the GDPR exercises that I've done in some companies, the problem has been mostly outside of Office 365. Uh, marketing systems, for example, are a blooming nightmare, absolute nightmare, uh, because of the fact that uh, a lot of the information that people have given over things like conferences, whatever, hasn't come with the right level of consent to allow uh, a company to continue using that data for marketing purposes after May 25. You know, which is one of the reasons why you now see a lot of email going out from from companies to say, hey, you know, <laughs> we've got we've got data from you. We need your consent to keep on using it, right? And that's what uh, this, those type of systems are probably more problematic in many cases. And then as well, just while we're busy talking about GDPR and you're talking about consent, and one of these huge buzzwords at the moment is compliance, 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 yep. compliance. Everybody wants is everybody talking about compliance. What is your definition? Of compliance. I think Microsoft has actually got a pretty good definition of compliance, which is that the 
compliance is that are the tools that help you keep the data that you need and get rid of the data that you don't. And the reason why it's a loosey-goosey, um, uh, somewhat a loosey-goosey uh, definition is that uh, the data you need is very, very, very much dictated by the industry you, you operate in. So if you're a financial services company working in New York, you are the data that you need to keep is so much deeper and so much more pervasive than the average uh, mom and pop store running an Office 365. So I guess the first thing, the first challenge with compliance always is, so what data do you need to keep? Because that then will tell you what data you can get rid of. And the data that you need to keep is going to be defined by the industry regulations, the financial regulations, government regulations that apply to your operations. So, Tony, why do you think there's so much potential confusion about GDPR and compliance in general? Uh, firstly, it's very boring. Uh, secondly, it can be very legalistic. Uh, you know, if ever you want to have an, uh, an argument which involves angels dancing the head of a pin, you just get a couple of lawyers in the room and we talk about GDPR. You can have great fun. However, the most, imp most important thing about compliance and GDPR is that in some cases, uh, we are going to need, we're going to need court cases to be argued to understand exactly what's required. Okay, remember that this is the European Union imposing a regulation that has got to be transposed into law in 28 different countries within the Union. And then uh, we are going to take some time before the law, as it's transposed, is actually argued in court by lawyers to actually um, just tease out the finer points. And that will give us... a, a a lot more precise definition about what is absolutely required and what is not. So, so today, I think what you're in is in a situation where um, it's a um, we're all trying to do things the best possible in the best possible way, uh, according to the feelings, what we're reading, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we're in a bit of a uh, of an information vacuum. Now, to come back to overall compliance, it, it's I think compliance generally um, has been a, a topic area that was be driven by the enterprise, driven by the financial services uh, industry mostly. If you go to um, a conference like Legal Tech, for example, in New York, this one every, every year in, in, in the January timeframe, you will see the depth and breadth of compliance as, as applied to the legal industry and to to, so that's the lawyers' uh, operations themselves and the finance industry, and it's just huge. But outside of those industries, uh, people only really responded to compliance when they needed to, and they were and they only needed to when regulations came along. So, in fact, GDPR is a great wake-up call to a lot of organisations to say, "Hey, do you have? Are you keeping data that you really don't need, which might expose you to risk at some point in the future?" And on the other hand, are you able to satisfy, are you able to make sure that people's privacy is respected? Are you able to prove to your suppliers and prove to your buyers, your customers, that you do respect people's privacy? Yeah, I think those are important things for, for organizations to actually be able to do. So regulations drive compliance. 
the fact that GDPR is a uh, is a is a EU wide regulation, and it's a regulation that every company that operates in the EU has to, has to uh, comply with. That will drive uh, uh, additional uh, focus on compliance, additional focus on user privacy, and, and that's all good stuff, I think. So, Tony, you made a good point about, um, I guess, the legal precedent like, and, and the fact that, you know, once this is, is actually written into law, the finer details of how it gets, uh, I guess, applied uh, or, or kind of argued in the law court, I think that'll, that'll kind of help guide a lot of companies because they may see some glaring holes in the way they've implemented, uh, you know, their GDPR compliance versus what, you know, court ace, the, the new court case or the, the, the first, um, yeah. So I think that was, that was a really, really good point. Something that I find, you know, when, when talking to my customers about it is, is that, you know, we're, we're in the United States um, and everyone's going off the head, as, as, as Warren said before, about GDPR compliance. But is this something that affects everyone around the world, even if, you know, if, um, only if they do business in the, in the EU? Or is this something that everyone in the world should at least be aware of? If you want to do business in the EU, you need to be GDPR compliant. Okay, fair enough. Um, and basically, for any large company, they're they're probably doing business in the EU. And you remember that the EU is only likely to expand. Well, you know, the Brits are going to leave very soon, whenever they get their act sorted out. So it'll go down to 27. But there are other countries that will fill that vacuum over the next 20, 20 years, you can be sure of that there will be additional EU members, in my judgment. Other people might disagree. So it is going to be an important um, factor in terms of it will gauge your business. If, you, if you're if you a company that's operating outside of the EU and you want to expand in the EU, you have got to be GDPR compliant. Otherwise, you're, you're automatically limiting your business. Um, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that uh, you are going to have other uh, jurisdictions around the world who be looking at GDPR and say, hey, you know, okay, there's some stuff here that we don't like, and but there's a lot of stuff here that we do like. And it's good to protect uh, privacy, and it's good to make sure that companies have systems in place to prove that they uh, know what they're doing when they process data that they gather from people. That's all goodness. You may not, I, I, you know, uh, agree with every one of the articles written down in GDPR, but the, the central principles are good. So I think you will find that the other jurisdictions will look at that and they will figure out how they will integrate those principles in their own regulations. So uh, these are part of the reason we think GDPR is generally pretty. It's a pretty good thing. It's a, it, you can't argue against it from that perspective. You can't argue and say, oh, yeah, it, it's okay not to respect user privacy. It's okay not to know why we collect this piece of data and store it and process it. You know, you can't really argue against that. So that's why I think GDPR is going to have a really good effect uh, overall, even though a lot of people are losing their heads about it right now. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, given everything we've already talked about, would it be fair for me to say that, as far as Office 365 is concerned, uh, Microsoft provide the, the tooling and the framework for compliance, um, but really it's up to the individual organizations to make use of that, right? You're not automatically covered just because you're in a Microsoft data center. Yep, that's, that's absolutely correct. I mean, the, you, could, you can go and run an Office 365 tenant and ignore every single one 
of the data governance uh, pieces of functionality that exist. And nobody's going to say diddly boo to you uh, unless the, you know, the GDPR police or whoever will monitor GDPR in a particular country comes looking for you. And mostly that would be if somebody takes a case against you to say, hey, I contacted company A and they weren't able to do this, that, the other thing. And then you might get a visit. But I think you're right there in saying, yep, uh, Microsoft will provide the functionality and then it's up to each company to do two things. One is to understand their role, their obligation underneath whatever regulations they operate under. Microsoft cannot help you with that. You've got to understand that it's your business, your responsibility. After that, it'll be up to the within the company to say, okay, we now understand our roles, our responsibility, our obligations under GDPR or whatever other privacy regulations operate in the jurisdictions where we uh, have operations in. Now, how do we take advantage of the technology that's available to us that we're already paying for? And then, you know, that's a matter of just mapping uh, the obligations that you have against the functionality that you that's available to you. In some cases, you're going to go and have to buy some extra uh, functionality. You might have to upgrade, for example, from an E3 plan to an E5 plan. For some folks, so be it. For example, if you wanted to get advanced uh, advanced uh, e-discovery, if you you think that that's going to be needed, maybe that's going to be an upgrade. But in other cases, it's just going to be a case of I need some specialized stuff, in which case you go and look outside. You might find an ISV to help you. I, I, I love that. There was there was a, a very subtle um, go find an ISV. But we touched on, on court cases and that law isn't really anything until it's proven in by, by legal precedent. And we've seen a lot of hype around the the US Cloud Act and there's been some cases where Microsoft is currently involved and has refused to surrender mailbox data for a, uh, a US citizen that's held in Ireland. Can I ask double pronged question, your opinion in terms of what that means in terms of Microsoft being in court around this? as well as what do you think that has to do with GDPR in the long run? Uh, I'm not sure it has very much to do with GDPR in the long run, <laughs> because uh, what you're talking about here is a consumer version of this Hotmail. Okay, so my, Microsoft is the data processor and it's the data controller. Um, and anyway, uh, GDPR allows for uh, perfectly legal processes to recover information about somebody which is required by a court of law and in fact in this case it was interesting that the Irish government um, uh, they filed um, I don't know what it's called the friends of the court kind of information with with the US to say uh, you know what here's the situation here if the FBI had actually come to us and said uh, the U.S. and Ireland have got a treaty which allows for the recovery of this type of information, and they had used that method to get the information. We would have handed it over because that is mm -hmm. the perfectly legal, defined protocol that's set down in law uh, and protected by an international treaty. So we, we'd hand over that information. Said they, they slapped this court case on Microsoft, and uh, I don't know why they did it because they just ended up spending wasting years and years and years on it. 
So that information was was handed back to the U.S. Supreme Court by uh, an Irish, um, the Irish government, which said, "Hey guys, why didn't you just use the official route instead of the short route?" Um, sure. So I don't know. You, you know, these are the kind of things when you're dealing with this absolutely criminal acts. We're we're at a different level than GDPR. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't think you you can apply privacy to criminal acts. If two governments, two international governments, figure out that there's enough evidence around for us to need some information about somebody who's a drug lord, and that information's in an email server, and they they do it all by a book, by the book, uh, according to international treaty, I have absolutely no problem with them going, getting that information. Well, I, the reason why I ask is that as much as you and I understand that there's a consumer difference to or that there is a consumer version of a cloud service and there's a business version of a cloud service a lot of the press has been around the fact that there is a cloud service that microsoft hosts and there's a lot of confusion that reigns around anything that has to do with the words law cloud and now we add compliance and well, I think that the kind of advice that yeah, you're but, saying... Oh, 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 hold on a minute, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. This, this kind of thing is not new. It's been happening for years and years and years. Police forces have always had the opportunity to go to email service providers. In the old days, they were hosted companies. Now they're slightly bigger hosted companies because they're cloud, cloud, uh, cloud scale, like Office 365. Mm-hmm. And... They've been getting information for years and years and years. So I'm asking myself, what's the real difference here? Go on. Why are people, why are people so so fussed about it? Because, you, you, you know, if you've done something wrong, if you've got nothing to hide, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. If you've done something wrong and you're a drug dealer and you've got, you know, you're, you're stupid enough, by the way, as a drug dealer to carry on conversations on Outlook.com or Hotmail or, or, or Gmail or whatever about some operations that you want to ship cocaine around the world uh, well you're a, you're an idiot number one and I have no sympathy number two if if those emails are retrieved and used in a court of law mm-hmm. <laughs> and the second thing I was going to say is by the way the, the difference between a consumer and a business um, system today has pretty well gone away because in the case of Outlook.com and Exchange Online, they run, they run on the same infrastructure. They run on the same servers. They use the same software. They use the same storage. It's only two different user interfaces that are delivered to a business user and a consumer user. That's the end of it. Okay. That's and great. Microsoft has been, has been really, really, uh, they were really uh, obvious about this and very uh, blunt about this and they said when they were moving people across from the old antiquated hotmail.com infrastructure they said they're moving up to office 365 and by the way that's a good thing because if you look um, one of the most recent developments is that um, office 365 home users who use outlook.com can now encrypt email as they want and that encryption functionality is exactly the same as the one that was introduced about six months ago inside Office 365 for business consumers. So functionality is flowing both ways. Mm. And that's all because they're using the same, exactly the same infrastructure, exactly the same software, and exactly the same servers. That's great. And uh, since uh, we're being mindful of your time, uh, I was going to let's stop talking about compliance and talk a little bit more about you. 
<laughs> are you are you complying? No. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. You um, have to ask my tax man. <laughs> for sure. So speaking of the tax man and uh, careers and the career that you, you've had, mm-hmm. have you got any advice for anybody wanting to sort of come into the cloud-based services or wanting to have a career in this space? Um, there was a there's a there's a, there's a segue to that as well. Having written fifteen books, um, where do you start? What makes you want to write a book? What makes you want to keep writing books? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> well the first yeah. thing I say is that there is no need to write a book. Uh, I think it is important that other people are willing to share knowledge and experience because that's the only way you're going to grow. Uh, in terms of success in the IT world, uh, the only thing I've learned in the last 40 years is that IT changes all the time. And if you are not prepared to change, you're dead. That's that's simple end of. Um, we we look back in the past. In fact, I had an argument the other day with uh, some guy who's uh, an ex-colleague of mine from Digital Equipment Corporation who was waxing lyrical about a thing called the digital command language she said, it's so much better than today's PowerShell. I was like, dude, you haven't got it. You know, you really haven't got it. If your argument, if that's your argument, you don't understand where technology is. Because, yeah, DCL was great in the 1970s and 1980s when we were dealing with fax computers that came out once a year and an operating system update that happened once a year and we had a limited number of products. Look what PowerShell deals with today at cloud scale. So you've, you've got to lose this kind of, oh, the tendency that we have to embrace old technologies that we really, really know well and be prepared to go forward into the, into the future. I think one other thing I've observed over the last 40 years is that in everybody's careers, there are a number of waves that come along. Sorry, in a technology career, there's a number of waves that come along. And the people who are most successful are the ones that ride those waves. So the people who picked up, for example, uh, early on and the move away from mainframe, that, that was really big. Then they did really, really well. The people who then picked up in the move to a, a PC client server, the people who uh, picked up on the, the move into Microsoft Enterprise, because, you know, that, that wasn't, you know, 1996, Around that time, that was not seen to be something that was going to be successful, but both the folks who invested early in that have done really well since. And the people who have embraced cloud systems uh, early and have, have really started to take advantage of it, they're doing really well at the moment. But you know what? There's going to be something else that comes along. I can't tell you when it will be, and I can't tell you what it will be, but there will be a wave that comes along. And if you can get on the top of the wave and ride the wave, you'll do really well. If you, on the other hand, if you don't get on top of the wave, you're unlikely to be smashed by it. That is that is some very good advice. I think, the you know, like you said, the only constant is change at this point. So, you know, be prepared to change. Yep. So, Tony, before we let you go, um, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, how can people get hold of you or follow you on social media if they wanted to... Uh, know more about you or, or, or kind of listen to more of what you have to say? So if they want to listen to my idle ramblings, they can follow me on Twitter and at 1212Noxina, K-N-O-C-K, S-I-N-N-A. People ask me why I use that as a handle. It's because I'm stupid and because when I signed up for Twitter in 2008 or thereabouts, I just used the uh, my home address. 
<sighs> I should have taken Tony Redmond, but there you have it. Uh, and if they want to, <laughs> if they want to read what I write, come along to to Petri.com, and uh, you'll find that I write there twice a week. Fantastic, and uh, you know I I follow you on Twitter, and uh, every single tweet is is valuable. I I find value in every tweet, so I I think uh, for anyone who's not already following Tony, I definitely think I uh, definitely suggest that you that you do. Um, oh, you're very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that said, I think we are we are ready to wrap up. So thank you very much for your time, Tony. Really enjoyed having you on the show. No worries, guys. No worries. Thanks, Talk Tony. To you again. Yeah. Ciao, guys. Bye. Our show is on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash thearchitects.cloud and our website is at thearchitects.cloud and on Twitter at thecloudarch. You can find me, Nicholas, on Twitter at Nicholas Blank as well as Facebook and LinkedIn. I also blog at blankmanblog.com. You can find me, Chris, at my blog, cgoosen.com or on Twitter at Chris Goosen. And you can find me, Warren, uh, www.waza, as in W-A-Z-A.co.za, which is my blog. Uh, I'm Twitter, at WarrenDT, and on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks for listening, and we'll chat to you soon.